This is the final word podcast of cricket, festival and celebration of cricket with your friends, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. At least I hope we're your friends. Maybe you just hate listening to the show. Fair enough. Whatever gets you off, we all have our own things. Big show this week. Uh, some stories floating around that the ECB might be canning the 100, which is interesting. I mean, obviously nothing firm on this, but but the stories have begun. Uh, we've got Nick Holt from The Telegraph on to talk to us about that. Virat Kohli and Gautam Gambier and their heavyweight bout head-to-head in the ring. Get, get Logan Paul to MC it, I reckon. A lot of action going on in Nepal. We've got County Championship, IPL, Ireland in Sri Lanka, Rachel Hayhoe, Flint, whatever else we come up with along the way. Adam, another show. Welcome. Hello, yes, uh, lots of England stuff. Ashes Bantz uh, with Stuart Broad that gets uh, dealt with in our discussion with Hulte, uh, a bunch of other stuff in England cricket, very newsy week there. So we thought that was the right place to start the show, broadly speaking. Lord's Tabs as well, uh, before we get into the, the meat and drink of the show, uh, we had VJ from our Final Word community complete uh, his first ever marathon uh, in Germany on the weekend, wearing the Lord's Tab singlet, four hours and six minutes, which I thought was a mighty effort, given he's never done it before. I think we're now five or six marathons down. We've got new sign-ups to the half marathon in Edinburgh. Matthew Jones, who is the, the partner of Hayley Fuller, who, Jeff, is on this week's Lord's Taverners email out saying, are you inspired by the London Marathon? Do you want to do something? There's a huge picture of Hayley Fuller leading the email, which I thought was... Bloody delightful. And Hayley only found the London Marathon because of uh, the, the shout-out that we had on the show to encourage people to run in, in that particular race. So it all comes together so neatly. Hayley, full-on effort. The president, Richard Bond McNally, who's another listener to the show, did a massive fundraising effort for his London Marathon, got about 2500 quid into the coffers for the Lord's Tavs, which is remarkable effort from El Presidente. Uh, he wrote to us, and, and well, this is nice, he said, let's not forget that if it wasn't for you two talking about the Tavs and mentioning the London Marathon, this money wouldn't have been raised. So that's a, that's a, yeah. a warm and fuzzy thing to start things off with. That's right. I think we're... 30% of the way to our 5,000 quid target collectively. So that's in the show notes. Hit that if you want to support the Edinburgh Half Marathon Runners. I did Park Run on the weekend, Jeff, at Alexandra Palace or underneath the palace there park in the park. Park Run. That's it. Um, I, I, I have to say I, my knee is giving me some grief at the moment, so I'm, I'm a tiny bit worried about that. So if anyone's got any solutions to solve knee tendonitis that don't involve not running, I'm all ears because um, I'm going to get around this track mm. in Edinburgh. But, yeah, the knee is giving me a bit of grief. At the moment, but it's okay. I look, tendonitis is is an an aging <laughs> man's injury. Um, that's what I've learned about it. it. It's more more common in men than women, and yeah, basically the only thing you can do is uh, stretch properly or rest. And you can't stretch your knee. That's one of the things that I know about knees. I'll tell you one thing, Adam. I I'm not going to run a marathon because that's insane. But I did ride 42 kilometers on my bike. So that's my contribution. Um, and, like, that was quite a long way. And, and, okay, it involved, you know, hills and slow bits and stopping at traffic lights and all the rest of it. But in the end, two hours, six minutes, right, Elio Kipchoge ran a marathon in one hour 58. So that guy by foot <laughs> did it faster than I could do it with the aid of a mechanical bicycle. I mean... It is bloody insane. I, work, I think I think he was six. I worked it out as sixteen seconds per mm. hundred meters 
basically. So, you know, if you're a, a if you're a champion level 100 meter sprinter, you're doing about 10 seconds. He's doing it 60% slower than them but doing that for 42 yeah, for, kilometers for most, straight. Um, mortals, if you're doing 16 second hundreds, you're going at a pretty decent clip. So, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be breaking 2 hours out of our lot. Maybe we'll, we'll aim to break 2 hours in the half marathon. We've added Pete Simmons to that crew this week, by the way, and I think I mentioned at the start Matthew Jones um, is now doing the 10k at Edinburgh. So that option is available to you. It is not too late to sign up. There, or to sign up to the TABS mailing list, which is the whole idea of why we're doing this in the first place, is to bring awareness to the great activities of the Lord's Taverners in existence for 73 years now, helping some of the most vulnerable members of our of our community, and, and they provide great service to the cricketing community at large. So um, sign up to that. It's in the show notes. Throw a few bob their way through the half marathon efforts, and, uh, and, and that would be a lovely thing. A bit of fun in the IPL this week with Virat Kohli versus Kortam Gambia, the big showdown, the big contretemps. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to disappoint people, but I think this was a little overblown. No. You know, it was an animated <laughs> chat after the game. There was, there was some there – there, there were words flying back and forth. Um, it all stems from – because Gambia is, is a mentor with Lucknow and they had a last ball win over – at Royal Challengers Bangalore earlier in the season and he he hammed it up a bit. He gave it the big shush to the crowd and that kind of stuff and Coley was not happy about that. So, so then RCB win the rematch. They managed to defend 126 and I think Coley was just giving it back to him um, and was uh, unrepentant afterwards, did some social media videos saying, well, basically if you dish it out, you've got to be able to take it. What I particularly liked was Faf de Plessis getting in the middle of it, strong uh, de Kock Warner vibes. <laughs> no towel involved for Faf on this occasion, but but once again in the middle of, of breaking up a fight. And instead of the towel, what I liked is that he was wearing the orange cap for the <laughs> Uh, the top run scorer of the competition. So it, it, if he can't L for you with his incredible upper body definition and his, his scanty clothing, he will just wear the cap that says, I am literally the best player in this competition and make sure that I get in the middle of it. Also the fact that Faf had this huge smile on his face as if it's like, <laughs> come on, fellas, what are you up to? That was good. No, I'm the other way. We should lean all the way in on this. As soon as I saw it, um, my first thought was um, w- this is another opportunity for us to to lace Coley with our fandom. Comrade Coley, I say, if he's up against Gautam Gambier, given the political allegiance mm-hmm. of the, the former Indian opener, I know they've got a long-standing beef. Um, I use that term advisedly, having watched a great mm-hmm. show on Netflix beef last week. I recommend it if you haven't watched it yet. But I think, I think basically, whisper it, Coley's one of us. I, I, can, I can see Coley mm. on the back of a ute with... Billy Bragg with our brothers and our sisters. Together we will yes. stand. There is power in a union. The whole bit. The whole bit. This is this is the Yeah. Waving the red flag, <laughs> RCB, red, Coley, red flag, back of the truck. Yeah. Um, the good kind of red flag, not the bad kind of red flag. Comrade Coley exactly. with K, you know, sort of, sort of King, King Kunta style um, with, from Kendrick Lamar. We can play that in the background. We can get Comrade Coley. I guess if he's KK, he should be playing for Kolkata Knight Riders. But we can work out the details later. The point is, look, he may have a personal worth in the hundreds of millions, but he's still a working class hero. He's still, he's <laughs> exactly. still a working class hero. The back blocks of West Delhi, as they always say, Virat Kohli's never lost touch with where he comes from, and that is why 
uh, that is why he's one of us. So, look, there may be nothing in that. Singing, Barnsley, <laughs> singing. Working hard to make a run. Seeking shelter from the rain. It is a cricketer's song in many ways. I'm taking him. I'm appropriating him on this front politically, even though he'd be mad to ever offer any political allegiance while he's playing for India. Although I suppose Ravindra Jadeja did last year. But, you know, put that to one side. His, his, um, his wife was on the ballot paper yeah. at the time. Yeah, Coley, one of us. You hit it here first. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so I think before we do anything else, we should get into uh, is the 100 going to be binned off as soon as possible? Let's have a chat with The Telegraph's chief cricket correspondent, Nick Holt. It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And with us to have a chat in the first half of the show is a man returning to the podcast. The last time we had Nick Holt on, the um, the cricket correspondent of the Daily Telegraph. He'd just written a book about England's World Cup success in 2019 with Steve James, and uh, we were going through that chapter in verse. Different kind of conversation today, though, Holty. Thanks for jumping on, because it's been a bloody busy week in England cricket news, not least around the 100. It always seems to be the lightning rod. Whenever there's 100 stuff in the papers, uh, there's an existential crisis of sorts. Hello. Morning. Hi. Uh, yeah, I, I, the 100 stories are... It's appeared from relatively nowhere, actually. And I think we've got a little bit of silly season going on as well. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Um, in that we've got this enormous Ashes series coming. Everybody's really excited for that. But actually not a lot going on between now and then. So I think that may have been part of it. Um, <laughs> but um, there's obviously been a, a, a culture shift at the ECB. And that's what's, uh, that, that, that's what's prompted a lot of these stories and a lot of the chat that's going around. We've had a, we have a new chairman and new chief executive in Richard Gould and Richard Thompson. And they're obviously looking to stamp their mark on, uh, on English cricket. And probably the biggest decision that they're going to face uh, across their tenure is what to do with the 100 and how to uh, take it forward from where it's, where it's been over the last couple of years. Because one thing I think we forget about the 100 is that it started a couple of years ago and the cricket world has changed massively in that time with new tournaments in the UAE, in South Africa, competition for the 100 that wasn't expected at the time and now we have uh, the IPL tripling its rights deal, the money that's that's sloshing around Indian cricket, um, the expansion rumours for the IPL, 12-month contracts for IPL players with their various franchises around the world and all this has come along ever since English cricket went through what it thought was its massive revolution in launching the 100. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point that the timing hasn't been kind to the 100. Also in the first year, it was still the remnants of the pandemic in terms of who could do what and restrictions and, and so on. And of course, the first year in 2020 was cancelled. But just to zero in on the, the two Richards, Gould and Thompson, we've kind of welcomed their appointments uh, on the basis that they're both pretty experienced operators and we'll have a fresh pair of eyes on kind of the international scene. But we haven't really spoken about their perspective on the domestic scene, acknowledging that Surrey, when they ran that club, were quite anti the hundred going back four or five years, but um, when Thompson took over, especially he, he seemed to be a, a convert of sorts. I recall listening to an interview he did with Athers, where he said that he'd been on a bit of a journey with the hundred and arrived at a much better place. So it seems like you say kind of out of kilter with that. That a few months on, start of a new season, that um, it, it feels like it's in the gun again. Well, I think there's no no question that they they they're, they're county men, and that that was the attraction for many people for them being appointed to the jobs that, that they've got. And I think anyone who dealt with the two Richards around the time of the launch of the 100 knows what their true feelings were, and they didn't hide them publicly. So um, 
and 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 they're also not going to repeat the Colin Gray's mistake of uh, labelling their own tournament mediocre in 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 public. So mm. there's obviously going to be some level of support for the hundred, and I think they recognise the power that the hundred possesses that it gives them uh, a future income to uh, to prop up the game. They've already had a four hundred million pound offer for the hundred, um, which they've turned down, and they've seen what it's done for the women's game and lifted that to a new level. I think because of their county background, they will see the damage or the chaos that it's causing for the schedule and the problem that it's creating for the counties. Namely, and number one for them really is the fact that during August this year when the country will obviously be basking in the afterglow of a magnificent Ashes victory, that the uh, only cricket being played in England will be at the eight franchise cities uh, in for the whole of August. And I think they feel that's not right. I'm just trying to get my head around this. So we've had years of the ECB pumping this up and saying, it's going to be the 100, this is the new thing, it's going to be different, it's going to be brash and bold and exciting. And then you're reading, and obviously this is being sourced out from somewhere, right? Somebody's feeding these lines out. So like Lawrence Booth's piece saying that the paper understands there is concern at the ECB about the fact 100 ball cricket is still played only in the UK. Like, yeah, we know that. That's what everybody said five years ago when the concept was first uh, mooted. And then it's like, oh, we've got a new idea. Maybe we'll make it a T20 league. Maybe we'll have 18 teams, maybe one associated with each county, maybe two divisions exactly what everybody was suggesting would be the best method four or five years ago. Is this not just fucking bananas? Like, I, I, I feel like they're gaslighting me. Like, they're like, oh, we've got these great new ideas, which are all of the things that we said we shouldn't do five years ago because they would be too old and boring and old-fashioned. But these are now the great new ideas that we're going to bring in to change the thing from the thing that we insisted it had to be three years earlier. It's It's... Absolutely, I can't get my head around it. I think there's a lot of things going on. I think that I think there's a few theories being tested through the media and see how they land. I personally think that probably within two years' time, where we're going to end up with 100 is that you'll have 10 teams. They'll expand it to two more teams because they feel that certain parts of the country are underrepresented. That's probably fair enough. They will probably bring in private investment into those teams. I don't see how they cannot do that, really, because that is the only way of of raising significant sums of money. And like I said earlier, with the competition that's thrown up around the world for players and talent, including the England players, at the moment, they're paying peanuts. When the 100 was launched, 125 grand for a few weeks' work sounded like decent money, but for these players now, it's absolutely nothing. So they've got to increase the salaries. The women's players need to be paid more. That money's got to come from somewhere, so it has to come from private investment. I think two divisions, promotion, relegation, it's a great idea on paper, but no Indian businessman, no businessman is going to invest in a team that might get relegated. So that can't happen for a start. The broadcaster is not interested in the county teams. And where, I, I, personally, I don't see any other broadcaster on the market apart from Sky. Sky have backed this tournament more than anyone else. And I think if they are, the ECB are risking their relationship with Sky if they, if they go too far down the road of moving away from the 100. Now, whether it's 100 balls or whether it's a T20... Does that really matter? I guess the broadcasters wanted the 100 because it's shorter and we've seen how long the IPL matches go on for. But the reason we have the 100 mainly is because when this tournament, this new franchise tournament was being discussed, a lot of the counties did not want it bastardising the blast, which is a T20 competition. And chief among those counties at the time was Surrey because Surrey were filling their grounds at the weekends on Friday nights, and they didn't want the competition for that, and that's fair enough as well at the time. So 
this is where a lot of this is coming from. I think a lot of theories are being tested in the media, but I suspect where we'll end up is a 10-team 100 tournament, T20, 100, whatever, with private investments. I can't really see any other way forward. In terms of, uh, you mentioned Sky and, and the other host broadcaster of the 100, the BBC, the existing arrangements that they've inked in, it seems to contradict so much of what's been said around their arrangements that, that these radical, and they would be radical if it moved to a 2020 comp from 100 ball comp now uh, due to the length of time. And I, I'm reluctant to call them franchises because they're not, because they're state owned. Mm. But the, the teams that exist and play in the 100 at the moment, if they do get franchised down the track with private investment, as you say, that, that would be a different story. But nonetheless, that, that Sky have tipped in all of this money and they bankroll England cricket, surely they... Um, must be reading this with some horror that the competition they're putting so much work into promoting the brand of men's and women's and they've put them on the even on the even footing and, and so on that it's being undermined from those within ECB towers before the start of a new season that, that there can't be any degree of satisfaction with that no and I understand that there, there's in some circles at the uh, sky there's there's real anger over this coming out now and they can't really understand possibly why it's come out now and 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 they, they see a magnificent summer for English cricket potentially <laughs> opening up in front of them and it could be a glorious time for the hundred as well in 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 August and and this this sort of stuff is being is knocking around that uh, that, is, that, is, that is designed to, to damage the product Sky have got a deal with ECB until 2028 and that includes a a tournament whether uh, you know how these things are with broadcast deals and governing bodies it's all a little bit opaque we never really know what the nitty-gritty is of the contract now whether that's actually a hundred tournament or whether it's just a separate tournament uh not entirely sure but the, the, so, there's, so there's obviously there, there is going to be another tournament until 2028 um otherwise sky will want to rebate and that, that would bankrupt english cricket so the counties rely on that money that 1.3 million they get from the hundred is now part of their bread and butter without it we know at least four counties are really struggling financially. Um, without it, they, they mm. would go to the wall. So, yeah, it does risk that, that relationship with Sky. And, that, and Sky have underpinned English cricket for two decades. Wherever you stand on the free-to-air debate and all that sort of stuff, and uh, without Sky's money, I don't... You know, English cricket would be in a difficult place. And, and obviously without English cricket, Sky too. Um, they do need each other. But at the moment, there's not really anyone else in the market. Maybe it's a naive question, but it seems like particularly from outside England looking in, what I always wondered the whole time was why didn't they just try to turn the blast into this thing that they wanted it to be? You've got teams, you've got a structure, you've got a setup, it's already there. You can do rebranding, you can give them flash names and colours, you can tie them to the cities rather than the counties and all of the rest of it. But you've got an existing T20 competition that had an audience. Why couldn't that have been turned into, whether it was eight teams at the top or ten at the top or whatever it is? Is the main reason that can't happen now is because that is also a thing that has been sold to Sky, that they get domestic cricket, they get the blast, and they get this other extra tournament, so they have to be, the two of them have to run side by side at, at least until the contract ends? Well, I think it's because if you if you only have uh, 10 teams or eight teams, then you, you're making redundant a lot of the counties, and mm. the reason that they want... Well, that, that would be a two-division well, structure if you did it that way. Well, we, we, again, we then hit up against the problems of promotion and relegation. Now, the counties, this mm. was put in front of them at the time, and, and was the preferred idea, preferred model among the counties, but quite a few were really upset by the fact that, say, Yorkshire and Lancashire might be in separate divisions, because really, the only, the only time they fill the grounds at the main grounds, apart from Surrey, and, and, and sometimes mm. Lords is when they're playing 
their local derbies. And without those, they lose a lot of money. Uh, we were also told at the time the broadcasters are not interested in county teams. They don't. The, their their research tells them that young people don't associate themselves with counties. You ask my kids, they'd have no idea what a county is or or, or what, you know. But what those names or brands mean? Now maybe that's because they live in London. I came, grew up in Northampton. You obviously Northamptonshire was was the county side. But um, that that was those were the reasons that we were given at the time that that the broadcasters just didn't want a two division tournament because there's too many games, uh, and they didn't want uh, the county brands. And I suspect, and also a major driver for it really was the ECB wanted control. They wanted control of all the teams, and they don't didn't and don't trust the counties to run the competition. Halty, that's a shortcoming of you that your kids don't have any allegiance to Northampton. <laughs> I, I judge you for that. Given your, your well, I didn't want to inflict that allegiance over I didn't want to inflict that Just a lifetime <laughs> disappointment. Well, well, We'll be talking about county cricket later in the show. Uh, a shortcoming of the high performance review last year was that it didn't mention the hundred. Right, the Strauss review just avoided the topic altogether. It was so baked in to the future of professional cricket. Remembering that review was commissioned on the basis of the men's Ashes misadventure, and and away we go as we often do in these four year cycles with with England cricket. But nevertheless, um, this wasn't even spoken about. And Andrew Strauss, I note, uh, uh, departed from his um, advisory role to the board on the ECB this week. Do you, I mean, would it be too cynical to believe these things are linked? I know he's got other opportunities professionally and, and that's related as well and that was all in the statement, but might it be that um, Strauss leaving at this time has some relationship to um, what we've seen floated in the press over the last seven days? Oh, I think so, yeah. I, I think he probably realised his time has run at the ECB. He's, he's worked there for quite a long time in various different capacities. Um probably time for a different different voice uh, for them. I think the way that the chairman and chief executive roles were filled in the end worked against him. There was a point where, you know, he was he was one of those candidates for being uh, the chief executive and uh, it didn't work out. Um, I think he's very disappointed that his review was, was knocked back so strongly by the counties. And... And and ultimately, yes, perhaps it was a weakness that it didn't um, it didn't address the hundred, but also there was no debate about the viability of of um, eighteen counties either. Those were the two weaknesses in that that report that it didn't examine whether eighteen counties are still viable, and it didn't examine whether the hundred needed a needed a review as well. One of the things that you always hear from the spin department about the 100 is how great it's been for, for women's cricket. Look at the women's 100. They've got it on TV. People are watching it and all the rest of it, to which my response is usually the 100 wasn't, isn't the essential part of that, actually backing and investing in your women's tournament, whatever shape it is and whatever the teams are called, is the reason that that's working. The two things aren't necessarily linked. It seems it seems cynical to me to link them, but I was wondering what your perspective is on that. Yes, uh, there was no real investment in the previous tournament, no real backing of it, wasn't really played at any decent big grounds and given no had no media footprint. Um, so yes, you're dead right. I think there was always a a sort of lack of ambition with women's cricket up until the last couple of years in England, it, with the international matches as well, played at small grounds, um, never played at 
Lords. We didn't play at Lords until last summer for the first time since the World Cup final, I think. So, uh, yes, uh, but I guess it's all part of the package, isn't it? If you're going to go to broadcasters and you're going to go to the market, you need something to sell them, something new and something shiny, uh, for the, uh, a toy for them to, 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 to play with and to develop and feel like they're part of it. And that's why the 100 was attractive. It was something new. It was something you can be part of it with the ECB in developing. And, of course, that just appealed massively, particularly to, to, to the BBC, uh, to, to jump on board with that. But, yeah, you're right, of course. There, there was no effort before to really... Uh, um, to really back a, a women's tournament. Uh, and we've seen, you know, what can happen when you do that. Yeah, and some of the reporting this week was like, well, the, the women's 100 works great. And look, I, I take Jeff's point, but it is fair to say that owing to the fact that it's on television, on, on free-to-air television more prominently and, and there's bigger crowds and the doubleheaders, it has had an effective um, giving uh, women's cricket a much bigger footprint. And the fact that it runs alongside the, the, the regional structures helped with that. The timing's been good for women's cricket, having this on a on a closer to even footing to, to men's cricket than before. But yeah, the idea that oh, we'll, we'll keep the women's hundred, this is one report I read, the women's hundred's fine, we'll just get rid of the men's hundred, as though that's even vaguely viable. Or alternatively, the women fold in underneath the men in their um, revamped super duper T20 blast structure, forgetting that the counties have never, well, not certainly not in my time covering women's cricket, have not been fit for purpose, which is why we have the regional structure. So it's a uh, it's like the women, again, are an afterthought. Maybe not from those making decisions at ECB Towers, but in some of the reporting, it's like, oh, well, uh, whatever works. That's good, just keep it going. When in practical terms, if there's no men's 100, there will be no women's 100, and in turn, they'll have to find a new structure for that, and that won't be easy. No, that's why I think it's going to be impossible to unpick it. And we're talking two years down the line. This is in place until 2025. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them to throw it all in a bin and start again. And then you, you start thinking, that, well, what is the point of the ECB if they're launching their own competition and then four or five years later they're binning it and starting all over again, the hundreds of millions of pounds mm. that have been wasted and all that progress that's, that has been made is just scrapped because a uh, few people don't like the 100 concept. Um, I can't... I, 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 you're right, you're absolutely. You cannot have uh, the women's game playing one format and the men playing another. I mean, what would that say? It would say that they're playing a second-rate competition because they don't actually think the 100's good enough for the men's game, but actually it's OK for the women to play it, but, but it's mm. not good enough for the men. No, no, that, that, that can't, that, that, I can't see that floating at all. This is why I keep thinking it's just going to go back to 10 teams uh, and probably stay as the 100. It, it sort of fits in with the women being folded into a caravan, basically. Whatever, wherever the men's game goes, we'll we'll sort of let the women trail after it, and they can they can uh, they can come along and do their own version of it. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. And and I guess going from you know you had the Kia Super League, you go into the hundred, you've got the Rachel Hayho Flint Trophy, you've got you've got all of these different competitions, but there's but none of them have actually had been around for long enough or had enough sort of investment into their identity I suppose to make them a really recognisable instant part of of the landscape and so yeah the idea that you just have a detached women's hundred just floating around on its own would just be another example of this I think. Yeah, uh, and, and you have to remember, what, what has the 100 achieved? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's obviously a lightning rod for the culture war, I suppose, in English cricket um, between county supporters and, and, and others. But what it's done is it's brought a lot of families into cricket grounds. You know, and I, I, I've, I've taken my family to 100 matches, to women's games and men's games, and the atmosphere is different. Yeah, there was a few beard-up guys uh, in the first year, but they seem to have got better control of that. But I've also covered a lot of T20 blast matches at Chelmsford at the Oval and various places, and it's a lad's night out. 
and that's the not the audience that English cricket wanted to attract all the time. I mean, there's a time and place of everything, mm. but and so the hundred has has achieved that, and the women's game is absolutely central to that. The family element to that to that competition is probably what's going to is is more important than anything else in English cricket at the moment. It, it must be exhausting for you as a, a reporter whose job it is to to track this day-to-day on social media. You touched on the culture war before, and we've done episodes devoted to it. Will McPherson, your colleague from The Telegraph, and I sat down for an hour and spoke about the culture war last year. We had Dino on as well, Dean Wilson as well, to to talk about this and how cricket in England seemed to be tearing itself apart. People who all love the game have a very different view about how it should work in the future and without wanting to be too reductive that those who are very anti the 100, oppose the 100, seem to um, be of a certain demographic which the ECB are less concerned with, obviously, because it's not yeah. the future, strictly speaking. And those who have got an interest in the 100 being um, closed off to any concerns of those from the 18 first-class counties. That, that, that This division doesn't seem to be getting resolved anytime soon. And, and uh, stories like this just send everyone back to their starting points and this balkanised debate continues. Well, it's funny because this morning I was thinking about this and I went through um, uh, some of the stuff I've written in the past. Um, we're back in 2008. We've actually turned the clock back 15 years. Um, and 15 years ago, the IPL launched and started and the ECB didn't really know what to do at the time. Uh, there was a, there were a lot of issues between the ECB and the BCCI and Lalit Modi and Giles Clark and all that. It was a great time to be a reporter. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and during the Lord's Test match that year, there was a, a news broke of a, of a T20 tournament, which was put forward by Keith Bradshaw and David Stewart. Um, sadly, neither of them uh, with us anymore. And Keith, as you probably both know, was such a visionary. Uh, this is when he was chief executive of the MCC. And uh, it was of a new T20 tournament for nine teams. And I, I found the document this morning um, uh, uh, and um, blew the dust off it and, and read it. And it could have been written today, apart from the numbers, a bit different. It, it projected £300 million over 10 years for the game from... Uh, from private investment, eighty-five million pound revenue every year. The new T Twenty Limited, owned by the ECB, with shares for the counties. And I remember writing that story at the time, and it got killed at birth, really, by by the Derbyshires, the Leicestershires, and and the counties ganging up and and knocking it down. And and what happened? Well, they ended up signing up with Alan Stanford instead. So you wonder if if the ECB bins the hundred and doesn't go down the road of Indian investment uh, and, and private investment in the franchises, what's the alternative? Because in the history teaches us the alternative isn't that clever. Nick, another story going around is, is about the player contracts, um, whether that's central contracts for England players or, or, or annual contracts for county players as well, and, and that England players might start tending towards not agreeing to these contracts because the bang for buck that they get out of that national contract um, pales next to the kind of money that they can make in the T20 leagues if they want to be able to have the freedom to go and play when they want and where they want, that sort of thing. Um, And Neil Manthorpe wrote a really good piece during the week uh, on his website about the fact that players still fall back on the counties or on their English central contracts when they're injured, when they want coaching, when they want rehab, these kinds of things, when they're not able to play in, in a T20 league somewhere else but then want to be released to go and, and play these competitions. His argument was that if, if say, the IPL franchises want to start signing players up to multi-year contracts, then they need to 
be paying first-class teams if those players are going back to those teams, using their facilities, using their coaches, using their rehab, uh, their physio, their, their medical systems and all of the rest of it, and that there could be an inversion of that dynamic. What do you make of this? I, I mean, it's, it's mutterings at this stage. There's nothing formal, but it could become more concrete pretty quickly. Well, I would think that these franchises are so wealthy that they would have their own medical facilities in each country and, and be able to look after their players and not have to send them back to counties. I think, or whatever first-class team, I think they just want total control. I don't think they would want them going anywhere rather than staying with, with them. I mean, it's, a, it, it's something that is on the radar at the ECB. They know that their players... You know, English cricket is in a position, first time in my lifetime, that it's actually producing really, really highly talented white ball players. So there's a there's a production line of them, and they're going to be they're going to be wanted. Multi year central contracts have to come in. They have to increase the match fees. Harry Brook earns is is not actually on a central contract. Harry Brook is on an incremental contract, which is the one layer down, which means that he earns fifty eight thousand pounds from his ECB deal at the moment. Wow! Now he probably get he probably gets more that uh, more than that for going for a net practice in the IPL mm. uh, than he does getting from the ECB, and of course that is topped up by by match fees, which. I can't remember what they are, but they're about 20 grand a test match or something like that. Mm. And that is because he um, missed out when they handed out the central contracts in September last year. He, he obviously didn't really burst onto the scene until later that year, uh, later uh, last year. Um, but that's the rigidity of the system, you see. So there are players on central contracts earning more than him that are not in the England team. And so you can see why these guys are, are poachable, why they are playing in the IPL. And, and so the ECB does have to bring in multi-year contracts, increase match fees. But I go back to the central question, where's the money going to come from? Because the margins in English cricket are tight. They've got a long-term deal, 2028 with Sky. So that money's guaranteed until then. There's no increase. That's it. And inflation's running at 10% in the UK. <laughs> where are they going to find the money from? Well, this is it. Like the 220 mil per year that Sky pop into the ECB to keep it afloat. Everybody wants its uh, pound of flesh, understandably. And yeah, like it's not as though the, I think it's lost sometimes. Like the, play, the players don't cry poor when we speak of those sums of money, especially in the context of a cost of living crisis. And it is a crisis with inflation out of control here as well. It's just compared to what they can earn elsewhere. That, that's where there's got to be some adjustments made. And I think you're right. It'll ultimately be in the form of match payments. I, I don't see any way that you can wear a player to a 12-month deal anymore. Certainly not the white ball multi-format players. They're going to have to find a way to get them back when they need them for really important tournaments or, or really important test series, but accept the fact that sadly, very sadly, the world's moving in a different direction. Uh, a light note to finish, uh, Stuart Broad has been having a wonderful frolic during the week and more power to him for it. He just has a way of being able to trigger certain Australian fans. I think most Australian fans know what's going on and can get in, get involved and enjoy it for what it is. But there are some Australian parochial fans who, who will never quite get it, I, I reckon. A bit about The Last Ashes being void, especially the bit about having invented an outswinger for, for Lavish Shane and Smith, which was just brought at his absolute best, saying that, you know, 560-odd wickets into his test career, he's now learnt how to bowl an outswinger. Nice one, Stu. But on the, I mean, there, there, there is a point there. there. There is a kernel of truth to what Broad's saying about the last Ashes. It was a debacle on so many levels. It's comfortably the worst tour I've ever been on. The players hated it. The journeys hated it. Not that we matter. And we were all very grateful when it was over due to the, the circumstances with, with COVID and, and so on. But Broad didn't say it for that reason. He did it because he knew that he'd get a rise out of um, out of the usual suspects in Australia. He's, a, he's an expert at it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's um, yeah, the England are talking quite cockily, aren't they? At the moment, you've got a bit abroad. You had Ollie Robinson not that long ago as well. Yeah, I, it, England lost that Ashes series because they selected badly in the first two tests. They were poorly prepared. They'd spent two years obsessing about the Ashes. Uh, and they got there and they weren't ready. And that's why they lost. I actually think the COVID restrictions were not suffocating until they got to Sydney, Melbourne. That leg was really hard. But by then, they were 2-0 down. It was all over anyway. So, um, And without that Ashes debacle, there'd be no Brendan McCullum, be no Ben Stokes captain. England are in a much better place because of what happened on that tour. Ultimately, they're in, uh, and, and probably Broad's career would have been over if it wasn't for those two coming in he wouldn't be in the England team now they dropped him for the West Indies tour so he's got a lot to be thankful for really I guess for that uh, for that series because it <laughs> prolonged his career it was the necessary it was like in the 1600s getting bled with leeches or something like it's not pleasant at the time but it's for the best yeah and and um, it didn't leave any lasting scars they've moved on that's, that's that you know <laughs> the, 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 what, nobody's going to remember that series in years to come and the last piece of the puzzle, uh, seemingly, is the boundaries. Now, um, you can interpret this how you will, but um, stories over the weekend that, that um, McCullum and Stokes will request the boundaries to be as short as the playing conditions for Test cricket in England allow for, which is 59 metres. We've seen this in the women's game. I remember when Mark Robinson was coach of the England side that he requested the boundaries be brought in as close as possible to provide some of his players, namely Nat Siver, with the confidence to, to clear the ropes. And it worked really well and they, and they dropped them back over time. Um, but I suppose um, this is in the gift of the, of the home board to have boundaries at whatever length they wish to have them at and they can pull this lever if they see fit and it can be another element to the summer ahead. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought of it until it was said, but it, in a way it makes sense. If they want their batters to back themselves to hit sixes all day, then, well, this is you know, having to send the ball 10 to 20 yards or metres less makes some sense. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't know why, because they didn't have any trouble clearing the boundary last summer. They were sticking the ball about 14 <laughs> rows back when they were playing New Zealand and South Africa. Mm, so I don't, yeah. I don't think the boundary sizes make a any difference. It's just that time of the year, isn't it? We're just waiting for an Ashes series. All these stories get, get blown up. I just made a note, actually, to phone Jack Leach to see if he's got a new delivery that he's been, uh, that he's been working on. <laughs> um, a a Zooter or whatever to... to bamboos in Australia but uh, yeah I, I just I, Stokes said he wants flat and fast didn't he those are the pitches that he wants um, mm. so that and, and if you've got shorter boundaries it's going to be great cricket it's going to be great to watch I wouldn't really want a ticket for day five of any of the games though that wouldn't be uh, that was probably not not a clever place to be at the moment but um yeah, when I saw the, the flat and fast thing I thought actually the most important thing is fit and firing isn't it because it's Stokes Wood, Archer, these guys are not fit and firing and playing and, you know, they've all had injury problems. Archer, it's re-emerged last week, had gone from India to Belgium to have an operation on his elbow and they only get one test match out of it and may never get another test match out of him. But but it does show that injuries are the big problem. Stoke hasn't played for weeks and Joe Root hasn't had a bat since the Wellington test match. So, you know, those things are more important than, than being... But bringing the boundary ropes in a bit, bit closer. Yeah, just just in closing on on Joffre Archer, he, he had a massive crack at the media for reporting on you know, pretty bog standard kind of injury news last week that would get reported on any player at any time. What was the the view taken of you and your colleagues that um that, that England players and those around Archer in the England team seemed to to fire up about this? It was it was all a bit odd from my vantage point. I think exactly that. It was Will's story, my colleague, and, and yeah, he, he, he was uh, he was quite odd. And I, I think a, 
Um, uh, other reporters might have been a bit more shaken about it than Will. He's quite tough. He didn't mind, but um, it's part of the rumble, you know, the rough and tumble of the job. But um, I think the mistake, and I think England will admit this now, the mistake was probably just not putting out a press release at the time because it looks like cloak and dagger when it probably wasn't. It was probably just an oversight. But that, but if they'd have put something out at the time, then it wouldn't be an issue. It probably would have barely have barely have registered really. But when when things are when things come out weeks later, it's easier. It looks like it was all done secretively. And I don't think Joffa probably really understood why that story w- was written, whether that was explained to him, I, d- I don't know. But, um, but he, he's, he's a big name in English cricket still and, and people care and, and want to see him on the field. And so any injury, especially involving his elbow, is going to be news. Yeah, hope, hope so. Hopefully he plays uh, throughout the summer and it's uh, an Ashes series that... Uh, that meets the hype, meets the expectation. I think it will be. Halty, you'll be a big part of that, reporting on all the tests for the Telegraph and look forward to seeing you through the summer and thanks for joining us today to give us a, a bit of extra insight on what's going on behind the scenes. Great. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks to Nick Holt for jumping on today. Finger always on the pulse. He wrote a, a pretty sharp um, opinion piece during the week as well, which was along the lines of the 100, back it or sack it, which you're um, in a position to do when you have that that job title. He inherited that role from Shield Berry a, a couple of years ago when Shield sort of semi-retired and became sort of that, that cricket writer at large, having covered like 500 test matches. But um, Holt, he does a, a great job. And um, yes, if there's going to be any major developments, you can be sure that one of those news hounds, Will McPherson, uh, Nick Holt, Ali Martin, Lawrence Booth, one of them, George DeBell, will have it because um, that's the great thing about the press pack over here is they're, they're very competitive for news. So Keep an eye on all of that um, because if there is, uh, well, smoke fire is my sense of it. There's no way these stories that get briefed out. Lizzie Ammon had a couple of stories in the Times this week as well. There is definitely a move for change and I don't know where it's going to land. Some of the stuff being mooted does feel regressive though, doesn't it? You touched on it in one of your questions. It's like, you know, we over here have been told forever that the existing framework wasn't working and now any move to return to something like the previous framework, would seem uh, an abandonment of any real ambition, whereas the 100, whilst divisive, is clearly having a pretty big crack at trying to harness that new audience that was such a big emphasis of the 2019 Men's World Cup. Like, it's all part of that same slipstream. So I hope that cooler heads prevail here and it isn't kind of down to this parochial culture war bullshit because the game can do without that over here it's just not big enough to survive you know like it's not like Australia where everybody follows cricket everyone's got an investment in it I say everybody most people have some view about the Australian cricket team that's not how it is over here sadly all right Adam let us play a little bit of a game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It is the game that we play with the nice people on the internet who fund this program. They are the power behind the machine. Solidarity with the workers, the podcast workers <laughs> in this case. Uh, the way they do this is by sending in contributions that are not normal amounts of currency. They're specific amounts that relate strictly in some way to cricket. We don't know how and we have to figure out what the number means. Our pledger this week, Jeff, is Tim Andrews. He, he doesn't have a clue attached, which means you can do with this number whatever you will. It's in AUD. That might influence your answer. And it is $4.63. 463, Tim Andrews. 463, and AUD did influence my answer because it 
led me to a match that we've mentioned a lot of times because we've talked about the ending of it. We've had nerd pledges related to the second last over of this test match that Australia played against India in 2008. We've talked about Harbhajan Singh and Andrew Simons and the racism furor that came out of this test match. We, I don't think we've talked about the actual match as in from the start, which is worth doing because it's an absolutely incredible test match. In the context of India get completely steamrolled in Melbourne, they're bowled out for less than 200 both times, Tendulkar makes 62, that's the only half century that India scores. So they're on the back foot, they know you come to Australia, it's a tough tour, Um, if you go one down then it's very hard to come back. But they're not quite playing the full sort of epic Australian teams. That's slightly after that era. Like Hayden, Ponting, Hussey, Gilchrist, they're still around. The bowling attacks, Brett Lee, Mitchell Johnson, Stuart Clark, Brad Hogg. So quality, but not quite the same super intimidating version that it might have been previously. And they get this Sydney Test match off to an amazing start, the Indian team. They're bowling a couple of spells from RP Singh. Phil Jakes for a duck, Matthew Hayden for 13, Australia two down for 27. Ponting and Hussey get together, put on nearly 100, and then they're both out with the score on 119. So Ponting had Harbhajan as his nemesis from the uh, the 2001 series where Harbhajan monstered him. Harbhajan gets him LBW for 55 after a stumping was missed when Ponting was on 31. RP Singh gets Mike Hussey nicking behind. Clark, LBW, Harbhajan for one, doesn't offer a shot, and Gilchrist nicks to slip for seven. So RP Singh has got four left-handers out, all to catches behind the wicket, and Australia a six down for 134 in the 35th over, right? Like, this is this is field dream stuff. You've got the real opportunity as a touring team to get right on top here. And that's the start of the Andrew Simons intervention. So he's on seven at this point when Brad Hogg comes out to join him batting at number eight. And Simon starts to play his shots. A lot of sweeps against the spinners. Anil Kumble is there with Harbhajan Singh. Hogg throws the bat around, scores quickly. Six overs before T is when the big moment happens, the one that you will know what I'm referring to, Adam. Having already survived a close stumping off Kumble, Simon smashes one off Yashant Sharma to the wicketkeeper. Huge nick. Steve Buckner says not out. Simons is on 30 at the time. That moment is the one that people always come back to in that test match. Yeah, I remember I was there uh, for the first couple of days of that test, I reckon. Certainly for that moment. uh, I was sitting up the back of the Brewongal stand somewhere in that part of the ground. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not like you could hear the edge from where we were, but it was one of those caught behind appeals that was barely an appeal. They took it as assumed. They were celebrating and running off and, and doing as you do and um, the finger didn't go up and there was that kind of... Uh, as soon as the replay went up, I remember this, it was pretty clear he smashed it. And the, uh, you know, that sense from the Australian fans that they got in the way with one and giving shit to the Indian fans, you know, all, all that back and forth that you'd expect on it. Mm. And you're about to tell us why. I'm sure the test got even more heated throughout, but it absolutely started there with that caught behind that wasn't. So they've added 80 runs by the time they get to T. Uh, Hogg comes out and belts the first two balls after T for four. RP sings the bowler. He's going a bit flat. The ball's going a bit flat as well, I imagine. Simons belts Harbajan over midwicket for six, enjoys it so much that he does it again, really getting under their skin at this point. And then Hogg sits back for a while while Simons steams along towards a century, brings up 100 from 128 balls, which is pretty fast going in test cricket. Hogg taps out at that point. He's on 79 when he edges Kumble to slip, but still a huge contribution. 
for someone who's in the side to bowl spin, not to bat. So they're 307 for seven. The partnership was 173. India's wilting, perfect situation for Brett Lee to come in and bash the ball around, which he enjoyed doing. The second new ball gets taken, Simon kills it, three boundaries off the first over that RP Singh bowls. Brett Lee keeps swinging the bat. They get to stumps. In the morning, Brett Lee just keeps going, keeps bashing boundaries around the place before he's LBW Kumble for 59. So back-to-back half centuries for the lower order. Mitchell Johnson in at 10. I mean, he made a test 100 as well and got close a couple of other times. He smashes five boundaries before he holes out for 28. Off Kumble, who then traps Stuart Clark. So Kumble finishes with four. RP Singh finishes with four, but they've both conceded over 100 runs in getting there. Simons, 162, not out at the end. Australia have got up to 463, which is our number. So India already pissed off with the umpiring. Simons is the focal point of that dissatisfaction and also that that feeling that they've let the game slip. But they actually get back on top in that test match. Dravid and Ganguly make 50s, Laxman 100, and Tendulkar, the unbeaten 154 that we talked about in the Tendulkar special uh, a week or two ago. Yeah, I was really invested in the Laxman 100. I'd, I'd been there four years earlier. Yeah, it would have been four years earlier in January 2004. The best innings I've ever seen live at, at you know, and just wanted Lakshman to do it again and celebrated wildly when he reached three figures, I think late on day two, if memory serves me correctly, uh, and batting as well as he did with um, with Tendulkar. I didn't quite appreciate the, the the innings of resistance that it was from Sachin until later. Like, I think I probably, well, I, I definitely was having a few beers. It was my last week of normality before going up to work in the PM's office. I'd taken the job, gone back to Melbourne for Christmas and... Uh, and had taken a couple of weeks, you know, downtime before. And that was the last bit of downtime going up to Sydney, having a frolic at the test match before having to, you know, not having to, but the privilege of working crazy hours and retreating from normal things like going to the cricket. But yeah, the Lakshman 100, uh, I, I, I remember enough of that. So the other contribution is from Harbhajan. He's batting at nine. He makes 63 and that's when the confrontation happens when Simons is fielding and and Brett Lee's bowling. India get up to 532, a lead of 69. Nice. And uh, now the Australians are the ones who are pissed off because there's been this confrontation. So they come out and bat with purpose. Hayden makes 100. Ponting makes 100. Simons makes 61. They make 401 for seven. Declare set India 333. And Simons plays a key part with the ball here as well. So Tendulkar's already out. And when Simons has Dravid given out court behind, they're 115 for four, and that's pretty much it in terms of any attempt to actually chase the target. Problem is that Dravid didn't hit the ball. So this becomes another point of angst. Simons gets the lucky break when batting, gets the lucky break when bowling um, with the, the umpiring off the boil once again. He gets Yuvraj Singh to follow for a duck. India just wanting to draw and a few overs later the other flashpoint when Ganguly edges Brett Lee to Michael Clark, who takes a catch very low down or it's given out. Maybe it bounced, maybe it didn't. I've watched this back a bunch of times previously and, and it's it's not entirely conclusive, but you know, you'd think, well, if Kettleborough had been in the box during that South Africa test match, he would have given it not out, put it that way. So mm. India getting more and more 
pissed off about this. Doni and Kumble bat out 20 more overs looking for the draw and then it's Simons again gets Doni LBW bowling his off breaks. Kumble bats 10 more overs with Harbajan and then they bring on Michael Clark for that fateful second last over. Harbajan at slip, RP Singh, LBW next ball and the fifth ball of the over, Ishant Sharma edges to slip and it's all done with seven balls to spare. So you've got both teams absolutely steaming for their own reasons as they head into the disciplinary follow-up of this test match, um, the Australians are adamant that Harbhajan called Simons a monkey. And I'll give you a language warning in two languages here. The, the claim from Tendulkar was that he said Terry Marquis, which translates as your mother's cunt, basically. Wow. Um, a a Hindi, Hindi term of a dissatisfaction with somebody. Okay. So, and then Tendulkar later talks about how angry he was that he was indirectly accused of lying in his evidence. The match referee, Mike Proctor, had made a comment along the lines of that one team's evidence was credible and, and the others was not. So India threatened to call off the tour. The The Australian border behind the scenes basically trying to talk their players into tempering their evidence and, and giving a less forceful version of events so that they can affect the outcome. Harbhajan's banned for three matches. There's an appeal to Justice John Hansen, who's a New Zealand judge um, who overturns the ban, gives Harbhajan a fine for abusive language, but the the ban for racist language is overturned. And he cites in his judgment that he thought the evidence from the Australians was selective. Um, he cites Michael Clark saying that he didn't hear Simon say anything when Simon's himself had said that he'd been getting into things with Harbhajan before this comment was said. So... The view from India was that there was racism involved in that Indian players were not believed and white players were believed. And it was a bit like the sandpaper situation. There was a lot of reaction more broadly from the cricket world, a lot from England, getting stuck into the Australians saying that they were the the sledges of the world and that they were complaining about it being given back to them, which, you know, depending how you interpret, depending on what was said, that either stands or doesn't stand. The Australian players, I think to this day, a lot of them are, are still quite bruised, mostly at the lack of support from their board for Simons and, and the feeling that it affected him in his life. And there was that curious kind of postscript with Simon saying that Harbhajan had apologised to him years later and then Harbhajan saying that he hadn't and um, and then obviously Simon's tragic early death and, and, and Harbhajan saying nice things about him after that point. It's There's no way to actually draw anything conclusive about what did happen or what was said. You can't know the people who were who were there or the, or the one who said it is the only person who can actually know for sure what it was. But it's no wonder that it's it's such a lasting sore point for so many people and, and for, for both of the teams that were involved. Yeah, and zooming out, it ended up being a tell for what would come with the power structure inside world cricket as far as the way that, that India and the powers that be with the threat of leaving the tour CA mindful of how devastating that would have been to their finances and acquiesce accordingly. I mean, Peter Young, the late, great Peter Young, um, used to speak about this quite a lot about the... He was head of uh, comms at the time and right in the middle of things because he was quite a senior person to be in that job. Like sometimes you get comms chiefs who, who don't have quite the same authority. He absolutely did and he was a right-hand man of uh, James Sutherland, the chief executive and, and a trusted ally of those on the board. And, yeah, he used to tell the story about how how they were completely shut out of the Australian dressing room after that, the sense that the suits had let the players down and not backed them in all the way and, and given in to uh, the BCCI. So, yeah, there was a, a long-lasting sense of dissatisfaction from the playing group that they didn't go as far in their support of Simons as they 
almost certainly should have. So 463 is the total that Australia made. That's our nerd pledge number. That's the comeback total. And, yes, India should have had Simons out on 30, but they didn't get him out for the 132 runs he made after that. So I suppose you can look at it that way as well. Bad umpiring decisions have been part of the game forever and uh, we still don't get all of them right. But that is my guess for the nerd pledge number of 463 from Tim Andrews. And if you want to send us one, you can go to patreon.com slash word. And uh, in doing so, you can help us keep making the show and you can be part of the fun. Another story time coming up this weekend. We'll take a break on this edition of The Final Word. On the other side of it, a lot of cricket to get through. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins with you. Nepal, it's been busy there's been activity. Tell me the latest. What's happening? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, only right to start our lap around the world there. So, yet yeah, more brilliant photographs and and, uh, and images yesterday, Jeff, of the end of the Asia Cricket Council Men's Premier Cup. Doesn't sound like a uh, the sort of competition that would generate huge amounts of activity, but I had a look at it. It was quite a big deal. Nepal, Oman, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Kuwait, Hong Kong, Bahrain, Singapore have been in... Um, in Nepal for this tournament over the last few weeks. It was a serious tournament, played over, you know, 24 games or, or something like that. And Nepal were playing the UAE in the final, which I think is a replay of the World Cup qualifier that was at Kathmandu a few weeks ago where they had the last massive crowd. This was a final played over two days, which Nepal got up in rain affected so all the pictures of the, are of the crowd standing sodden with their brollies which was a cool picture it'll probably win awards but I just wanted to note that the last time this came up Jeff when we praised Nepal for their progress and the Nepalese crowds for turning out what we failed to discuss was that Sandeep Lamashane is playing in all of these games for Nepal at the moment and just to recap he was charged with a case of rape last year on a 17-year-old woman. He was put on the Interpol fugitive list so he couldn't travel anywhere, had to turn himself into authorities a number of times. Now, he's denied the charges and he's going to take it to court later this year. But having originally been stood down by the Nepalese side, which which feels like the appropriate course of action, they've walked that back ahead of that World Cup qualifying round because, of course, Lamashane's there, probably their their first proper sort of global superstar. He's played in all the overseas comps and, and all of that. And he's been playing in this competition as well. So I think it gives the impression that Nepal cricket aren't taking this as seriously as they should, because if they were, they'd be putting the, the bigger picture first and, and making sure that Lamashane needs to have these charges cleared before letting him back in the dressing room. Well, it's the same sporting story that you see over and over again where pragmatism rules and if the player is good enough and they feel that they can't do without that player, then they'll be they'll make expedient decisions for themselves rather than trying to make morally consistent decisions uh, or, or trying to actually do the right thing. The right thing comes second to the most useful thing. You know, I, I would be surprised if you were a less prominent player or, or less essential than you'd be much more likely to see 
the right thing being done in this kind of case, but it, it's sadly the same kind of situation that we see with with players in all kinds of sports and all kinds of leagues. Yeah, and, and he's entitled to the presumption of innocence, as they say, but um, it, it doesn't mean that he gets to play in the intervening months. Uh, uh, you know, if you are charged, if the... Um, the threshold has been met to charge you. You need to – the responsibility, the, the onus is on you to have your name cleared before carrying on with normal life. That's, that's how it is with everybody else in the community. So I don't see why it should be any different for a professional athlete uh, or a cricketer as it is in, in the case of Sandy Lamachane. So we'll, we'll keep an eye, a closer eye on that than we have before. And uh, according to one report, he'll be in court later this year. So it'll be resolved one way or the other there. The county championship, let's move on to that. Uh, They only had a couple of games in Division 1 this week. Yeah, Middlesex will start at Lords. Uh, I was there on Friday with some friends from Australia and uh, they've had another big win. So, you know, you think about where they were like nine days ago, lost their first two games, were in a world of pain against Nottinghamshire who set up the game and gave them a chance to win on the final day. They took that and win again big time over Kent. Uh, victorious by nine wickets in a, in a low scorer. How's this, Jeff? Tim Murtagh, four wickets in the first dig, six for 42 in the second. So he's kind of like a, a playing coach now at age 41. He's 42 in August. So a 10-wicket match, and that brings up 1,000 in all formats for Middlesex and up to 944 in first-class cricket. Y- you, wouldn't, you wouldn't count him out of that. I mean, yeah, it, it's... On one hand, he probably started the season thinking this is surely the last year, but... If he's still capable of taking a 10-wicket bag in Division 1, he's mm. got to play next year as well, doesn't he? If he gets up into the 970s or 980s. Well, a, a few more 10-wicket matches. Yeah. You know, he might do it this season. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I mean, he should make a comeback for Ireland, frankly, get, get, in, get yes. another Lord's Test match in. The shame there, of course, being that if he was to play for Ireland, well, I suppose he could, you know, because he would need to register as an international as opposed to um, a locally-based player who was Irish, as was the case before they went full member. But Middlesex only have one, one international player at the moment and they're entitled to two. That's Peter Milan. So they could theoretically. Anyway, let's not give them ideas. Ryan Higgins, great signing uh, over from Gloucestershire where he started, made 71 to give them the lead. And yeah, Murta got Crawley in both innings. Crawley was out for a golden duck in the second dig. So after that big mm. century last week for Kent, mm. two more failures. You did foreshadow this last week, Jeff, that as soon as Crawley I, makes a score, he does fall off a cliff. It seems to be the rhythm of his career. Yeah, I think I said we're due for 20 low scores. So we've got the first two of those before <laughs> his next incredible 100 comes along. Uh, Surrey also won in three days over Warwickshire, away from home as well. Impressive performance. Good luck stopping them. Surrey are just so deep. I mean, they, they, they knocked over Warwickshire for 150 and 141. 15 of the 20 wickets were via Kemar Roach and, and Dan Worrell, the Australian who is qualifying to be eligible for England. I think he'll become eligible next year. He wouldn't completely rule that out, you know. He's, um, I think he might be 30 now, so he's a gun. He's an absolute gun county mm. cricketer. He's taken 16 wickets at 18 this season. Roach with a Pfeiffer in the second between times they took a healthy first innings lead via Jamie Smith. And again, that's that depth, isn't it? Jamie Smith can't get a game most weeks, but made a double ton last year, made stacker runs last year and an 88 here to, to top score. A couple of 30s there from Burns and folks. But yeah, there's seemingly always someone there for Surrey who are top of the table. They've got one game in hand and they're already ahead on 52 points. Hampshire 45, Middlesex 45 in third spot. Essex 40 and Surrey are playing away at Chelmsford this week. Somerset hosting North Hats, two sides right down the bottom in relegation zone. Knots are hosting Lanks and Hampshire have Warwickshire down at the Rose Bowl. And it, it is heartening to me that his nickname is Frankie Worrell. You know, it's nice that current cricketers have 
enough of an understanding. Like, sure, I know his name's on the trophy, you know, for the the, the Australia West Indies trophy, which which helps keep the name in the eye line. But they're probably, I, I would guess, a lot of contemporary cricketers don't know the names of many 1950s cricketers. Mm. They should listen to the more story time. But it's nice that, that you know, that Frankie Dub gets a still gets a run in the modern era. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Division 2, three games, more rain at Bristol. Uh, poor old Nick Friend was out there for most of this game from the cricketer. I, I think he's been at Bristol for every rained out day this year and there have been plenty. So before the draw, Sussex uh, did have time to post 455 for five declared. And guess what, Jeff? Pajara, 151. Every fucking week, Pajara, 150, 160, 170, whatever it is. He's, his record at Sussex mm. is ridiculous. He's got... Seven centuries and no unconverted 50s in the time he's been there, which I know is the sort of thing that gets you aroused. And uh, nice. that you've got a special spreadsheet I did for read, that. Um, I can't remember whose comment it was, but someone was pondering whether he was the, the best overseas signing ever. I thought he's got a little bit of distance to go past, say, Kumar Sangakara and mm. what he did for Surrey and, and, you know, or any number of players in, in the 80s, particularly when mm. county cricket imports were, were at their absolute peak with so many of the great West Indies players in there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation starter anyway. Well, if he stays for a couple more years and given that he has no white ball commitments with India, you'd, you'd have to think he's a decent chance of being the you know the overseas at Sussex for like five six years and he, he might be up in in that conversation Gloucestershire made 248 Harris missed out made 37 we got a start made 37 in the first dig and five in the second Nathan McAndrew who uh, had a good shield season uh, took five for 63 mm. so he's uh, having a good time of it uh, for Sussex and yeah rain ultimately got in the way of them pushing for full points with Gloucestershire following on at 121 for four. Um, Pete Hanscom nearly tunned up after talking to us. Great to have him on the show last week. And the next day, Leicestershire batted first and he made 95. Of course, it was Michael Nisa who got him out. Uh, one, technically one blow away from a century would have been his second of the season. But uh, um, still great that after having given us such a ripping interview on his birthday, on his 32nd birthday last Wednesday that he turned up the next day and uh, had a great time of it against the visiting Glamorgan side. I'm sure you caught, Jeff, as well, that Nisa, to get um, Vian Mulder out, bowled one of the most glorious in-swingers you could ever possibly see and had his moment of virality on Twitter and had everybody, including me and Barat and others, saying, why was he not in the Ashes squad? You know, I mean, I know you've gone through the... The, the, the way in which it, it doesn't quite suit him playing T20 cricket to call him up later. But might there be scope for this? Because he looks so so bloody well suited to playing test cricket in England with the Duke's ball. Mm. And, and, I mean, if a player can get the ball to swing in, imagine if a player could invent a delivery where it swung the other way. What if it went <laughs> away from... Like imagine if that was also part of the repertoire. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that bit from Broad during the week was just magic, wasn't it? Like he's invented an outswinger to bowl to Smith and Lavish. He's just, he's the best. He just is the best ever. Marnus got a score, made 64, um, which is his um, first score since arriving a couple of weeks ago. Six for, for Timmy van der Gutten. I was going to, uh, you know, Sydney's own place for Holland, of course. Excellent um, international in the orange, but uh, six wickets there for Glamorgan. Leicestershire ran out of time to set up the game, though. More rain in Leicester, so they couldn't get the job done on the final day. Hanscom, 12 not out, so a second match in a, out of three where he's had more than 100 runs scored with being dismissed only once, which I thought was nice. Um, did you see Eddie Byram's last ball, uh, Jeff, on Twitter? The Zimbabwean, well, he's not Zimbabwean anymore, but he's from Zimbabwe, um, who's now registered in England. A triple bouncer. 
uh, to Rishi Patel on 132 not out. Hard to keep that out. You know, because you're not used to it. You know, even if he is on 100 plus, it ended up being the final ball of the day. The umpire said, that is it. We're not playing any more cricket after this junk. But um, yeah, the triple bouncer, it went viral for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and the the wicketkeeper in absolute hysterics behind the stumps. Yeah, after after the elaborate forward defensive shot played to it, um, and uh, you'll you'll know who's behind the sticks. But yeah, d- down on his knees with his forehead on the turf, just crying with laughter. It's funny how other people's misfortune is always the funniest. What's the uh, how does the line go? Tragedy is when I get a paper cut. Comedy is when you walk into an open sewer and die. Yeah, it would have been Chris Cook keeping, I suppose, there there for Glamorgan on the final day. Yeah, in hysterics as you would be in a, in a situation like that. Durham surged to the top of Division 2. They don't feel like a Division 2 club to me, Jeff. Durham should be in the first division. You know, they've won it a couple of times in the last 15 years and they got relegated on account of the ECB decision back in 2016, financial irregularities and all of that. A lot of Durham fans have never accepted this and have taken issue with Colin Graves, who who was the chair of the ECB at the time. Nevertheless, they've started superbly this year. They made big runs against Derby at home, then won by an innings inside three days. Ollie Robertson, top recruit from Kent. Um, he's been playing in like the Lions and in the touring squads and all of that. Like, you know, remember a couple of years ago, James Bracey kept in a couple of test matches for England, right? Like this, yeah, this is to, to the other be one. clear, this is the other Ollie Robertson. The other one, sorry. Yes, the, the other. The, the other. one who didn't get in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yes, the, the other. Wicket keeper, the other Ollie the Robertson who used to play for Kent, indeed. But uh, yeah, the wicket keeper, early 20s, smashed 114 and 107 balls for his new club. I'm not saying that he's next in the queue or anything, but yeah, you know, if folks broke a finger and Johnny Besto was sly tackled by Ben Stokes at the uh, you know, before teeing off, if that would have happened, then you would have a conversation around the next wicketkeeper. And it might be Sam Billings, probably would be Sam Billings, but it also might be this bloke. So keep an eye on Ollie Robinson now at Durham. Also 108 not out for Bryden Cast. Now he's a fast bowler, one of the fastest bowlers in England. He's played for England in white ball cricket. He made 91 last week and a brisk 108 not out this week. So he's turning himself into a bit of a double threat. He wasn't in the wickets big time, though, with the ball as Derbyshire were knocked over twice. That was Matty Potts doing almost exactly what he did last year. It was through wickets for Durham that he forced his way into the test team. Well, eight more here. Rain with six. Those two early in the season are very challenging. So Durham on top in pole position to Mm. get promoted on 64 points. Leicestershire in second spot. A couple of draws and a win on 45. Sussex on 41. Worcestershire on 35. And this week, Yorkshire have Glamorgan, Derbyshire have Leicestershire. But the game everybody's going to be watching is at New Road, Worcester up against Sussex. It's going to be Stephen Smith taking the field with Chiteshwa Pajara. Smith's doing a press conference today and then he's heading up to Worcestershire. So um, I'm hoping I'll make it there for day one if all goes to plan. Steve Smith beginning his, I think it's three-game run in the second division of the county championship. Yeah, um, Smith getting getting his uh, his batting practice in in a way that enraged so many county cricket supporters. I want to know with with Ollie Robinson, the wicketkeeper, if he's going to go past Sam Billings, how far is he prepared to drive to make his <laughs> test debut? Like, say say you fly him out, you drop him off in Athens, and you're like, here's a car. You've got to get to Old Trafford for the test match, you know. How, how willing are you? What's your level of commitment? Maybe do an amazing race style. I was going to say. several England wicket keepers yeah. in different places and see who can get back first. If you're back first, you get the gloves. This is my model. I would put them all in different parts of continental Europe and let's say it's the Manchester test match and they, and they you know, mm. they, they, can't, they can't use public transport or something like that. They've got to do it on the hoof. They've mm. got to 
Yeah, I, I like it. Well, in the case of Robinson, he does now, he presumably lives in the northeast, and that's the same general direction up north where Matt Parkinson had to jump on the motorway last year and get from Old Trafford to Lords to take his place in, in the first test against New Zealand as the concussion sub. So it's not without precedent. And, of course, what Billings did when he came in a couple of years ago. So it could happen. Jeff, um, we touched on the IPL earlier, but you've been watching it more closely than me. Yeah, so in that Bangalore game where where things got heated after the match, um, just a note that Mohamed Siraj bowled really well in defending that low score. Um, he's been doing the job consistently. Also of note, Kale Rahul did a, a hip flexor. He injured himself while fielding. So he ended up batting at 11, faced three balls. And you'd have to think he's in doubt for the World Test Championship final. Now he's in that squad, which didn't delight everybody, but he might be out of it if that injury doesn't come good. Yashavi Jaiswal is a player who's been getting a lot of attention as Generation Next. He's 21 years old. Um, he made his first IPL 100 for Rajasthan against Mumbai. 124 off 62 balls. It's been interesting to see the way that he's being talked up as the next big excitement player. And I mean, in a way, I feel bad for some of these players because because there's there there are a couple of new ones every season who who get who get all of the attention for something they're doing in the IPL and it doesn't necessarily mean they get an India gig. You know, Ishan Kishan is an example, Rahul Tuatia, mm. players like that. But Jaiswal at 21 and the speed that he's been scoring at in T20 cricket, but also just quietly, nine first-class hundreds from 15 matches. Wow. For, he's averaging 80 in first-class cricket Bloody as hell. well. So. It might not be just the one format, who knows. Um, in that game, Mumbai needed 17 off the last over, chasing 213, and Tim David did the job, hit three sixes to win it with an innings of 45 off 14. So Yashavi Jaiswal made the 100 but didn't get the win. If he's averaging 80 in the Ranji Trophy, they must be very different surfaces to what they're rolling out for visiting teams mm-hmm. in, in Test cricket. I think you made this point when we were in India that it's almost not fair on Indian domestic players who play on flat ones on the way into the side and, and reach the top level and then have to turn out on, on snake pits to serve the interest of the national team at large. Like you think there should be some there should be some effort made to supplying pitches that are that are comparable for from four day cricket to five day cricket. Look, maybe maybe that's the outlier and where he's playing domestic cricket is is not how it is all around the country. But it does feel like, as you say, that there are players coming through with these extraordinary averages who don't get to convert quite so easily to the next level. Yeah, well, there are a lot of a lot of first-class Indian players with averages over 50, which is generally the, the, the marker for being really incredibly good, but it's, it seems to be more like you, if, you're, if you're a decent player, you should be averaging in the 50s and, and some are in the 60s. Um, so he's, he's up past 80 for the time being. We'll see how that pans out. Um, Joffre Archer went for a few in that game, but came back for after his lightning trip to Belgium and, and bowled quickly and looked good so you know hopefully that's a promising sign a word for Mitchell Marsh who took four for 27 made 63 hitting six sixes and still lost the game Delhi went down to Hyderabad in that game Um, Harry Brook made another duck so he's got an even 100 not out and he's got seven scores of 18 or less so far in this season it's been a um, Zach Crawley kind of style from from Harry Brook and Tushar Despande, the right-arm seamer who plays for Chennai, is top of the wickets at the moment with 17, so he's making his mark. So you've got CSK in fourth, Bangalore in fifth, Lucknow third, Rajasthan second, 
Gujarat top of the table and they've got a game in hand as we're recording just about. So by the time this comes out, that will have been played and they're playing Delhi who are bottom of the table. So they could be two games clear if they do the job there. That's the top five as it stands in the IPL. Very nice. So we're not far away from the business end of the IPL, I guess. Or are we still a few weeks away? I think the final's in early June. So. Fair bit, fair bit still end, to go. End, is it the end of May? End of May, start of June, something like that. Uh, yeah. The other game you're watching this week, or the end of the game, we, we talked a little bit about Sri Lanka and Ireland and their second test match at Gaul. It was a, a run feast and, and so it continued across the five days, Jeff. Well, we pumped up Ireland for going big. They made 492, a couple of hundreds, a couple of near hundreds. Uh, Sri Lanka, in response, went huge. Uh, For a team to make 704 is one thing. 704 at three wickets down is (laughs) something else entirely. So Frankie Roons, Dimuth Karunaratna, made 115. Madushka made 205. Kusal Mendes, 245. Angelo Matthews, 100, not out when they declared and then Ireland were all out for 202 so they were a session short of the draw on the last day lost by an innings and 10 runs in the end Harry Tector made another 85 which will please you as a a fan of the I always read him as Harry Tractor um, but maybe the tractor the Tector beam is something that we can work into things Ramesh Mendes uh, finger spinner took five for 64 So that's the third time in history, Adam, that the top four players in a team have all made hundreds. There was the one that I was trying to think of the other week, India in 2007 against Bangladesh when Dinesh Kartik, Wasim Jaffa, Dravid Tendulkar all made hundreds. And then Pakistan did it against Sri Lanka in 2019. Shan Masood, Abid Ali, Azhar Ali, Babar Azam all made hundreds. So the first 140 years of test cricket didn't happen and then it's happened three times in the last 15 years. And the other... Um, statistical category, the unusual one. It was the 20th time where two players have made double tons uh, in the same innings. So in this case, Madushka and Krishan Mendes that you mentioned before, 205 and 245 respectively. But yeah, going through it, there have been five times where Sri Lanka have pulled this off and three times where it's been against them. So high scoring cricket in Sri Lanka is not unusual. Yeah, well, this is what jumped out at me is how often the Sri Lankans have been involved. So Jayasuriya did it with Roshan Mahanama. Sangakkara did it a couple of times, once with Adipatu, once with Jayawardena. And Jayawardena also did it with Tilant Samarawira in 2009 in, in Pakistan, that series just before the terrorist attack. So 20 times in tests, the first one is Ponsford and Bradman in 1930, that we've talked about on the show plenty of times. But yeah, 20 times that two players have made double hundreds and five times that's been a Sri Lankan pair and three times it's been done to Sri Lanka, including earlier this year, Kane Williamson and Henry Nichols did it. So Sri Lanka got their own back only a few months later and and poor old Ireland were the punching bags. You could have have asked me um, to rattle off the one before that and I I never would have got it despite the fact that I I reckon I called both of them, Labuschagne's 200 and Smith's 200 at Perth last year against the West Indies. I've just completely forgotten that test match even happened, but... Um, but yes, they they did it. I guess it would have been December 2022. So um, three times in the last six months and 20 times in the history of the game. Yeah, a fairly forgettable test match, that one, I think, at Perth. It did go the five days, but um, yeah, there wasn't a huge amount to take away from that. The Rachel Hayhoe Flint 
trophy you've been keeping an eye on this through the week? Yeah, it's it's um, there. There was a fair bit of uh, the usual kind of moaning online yesterday about there being no county championship on Bank Holiday Monday. Well, there was a full round of the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, so there was domestic cricket going on at, at the top level. Having already played a game on Saturday, so they played a full round on Saturday and a full game on Monday in the 50-over stuff. So on the Saturday, the Sparks thrashed the Diamonds, who were all out for 171. They won by seven wickets in a low-scoring effort for the Sparks. It was Eve Jones who leads them, 67 not out. She's never far away from England calculations, although she um, has never been able to quite make it to that level. But she's always there and thereabouts when looking at the domestic game. The Vipers were back on track, having been beaten by the Sunrisers on opening day. They made 287 for six, then bowled out the South East Stars for 129, so a thumping 158-run victory. Ella McCacken, Maya Boucher, Georgia Elwes all made half-centuries, then a four for Fabel and a three for, for Charlie Dean, the two England bowlers. Of interest that you'll like here, Jeff, for the Stars, they used nine bowlers, which isn't, you know, Hugely unusual, happens from time to time in 50-over cricket. But how about this? Alice Davison-Richards, who came on seventh change, bowled ninth, sent down six overs. I reckon that might be a record. I don't reckon in list day cricket we ever would have seen the ninth bowler send down as many as six overs. What do you reckon? I like that. That would be very hard to check. You'd need a, <laughs> an Andrew Sampson-style um, set of algorithms to be able to to work that out. Um, so I did my own for the um, two double centuries in the same test match. I built a spreadsheet that automates that <laughs> process so I can find every instance where that had How happened. How did you do it? What, what was your, what was your, for those who are interested in this, did you, did you find a way of getting the Crick Info data dumped onto your database or was that another so way? So you, you, you build well. You can you can get a list of every double hundred in first class cricket. Um, so you can import that, and then you can sort have it auto sort by date. I think it is, and then then you set it up so that it highlights duplicate sets of information when it comes to. I can't remember which um, which value I did it on. It might have been on the whether it might have been on the um the the pairing the the team versus team pairing so if that matched up then those two entries would be next to each other and they'd be highlighted so it does still involve scrolling through like a couple of thousand entries to find the highlight duplicates but you can they're they're visually um, illustrated for you there you go there is the nerdiest thing we've ever talked about on this show you gotta fucking want it you gotta fucking want it and sometimes jeff you really fucking want it. The Sunrisers back to earth after their first ever win in the comp uh, last weekend. They were all out for 159. The Blaze chased that down and they won by three wickets at Chelmsford. Sarah Glenn, class, four for 22 from 10. Kirsty Gordon. We don't talk about Kirsty Gordon quite so much anymore. The Scottish spinner who played for England over a couple of years in 1819, started her career really well at the 18 World Cup. Um, She took two for 24 from her 10. I wonder whether she should go and play for Scotland again. Um, She's obviously a a capable cricketer. There might be another window for her to continue her international career. Uh, Beaumont uh, made her second half century to start the competition. There was a little bit of a wobble in the middle, but Nadine de Klerk, who's um, playing as uh, the overseas uh, for the Blaze, made 25 not out at the end, the South African international. Then the most anticipated game of the weekend was over in Cardiff. It was the Thunder, who were all out for 214, but no one was paying quite so much attention to their padding innings. They were playing the Storm, the Western Storm, who eventually chased it four down in 42 overs and got there easily for the Thunder. Emma Lamb top scored with, with 74. Danny Gibson took two for 13 
for the Storm. But then, yes, the defence of that, Mahika Gower playing uh, for the first time uh, for the Thunder. Um, I keep saying it, she's going to be the best bowler in the world pretty soon. We've talked about it on the final word already. 17, more than six foot three. She must be six four already. The most beautiful rhythmical action. Left arm at pace, moves it both ways. At one stage, she had five overs, two maidens, two for five. So she her first spell kept them. Well and truly in the game. Those wickets lit up Twitter as they tend to do when she's bowling. But then all the Prendergast walked in, who'd only arrived in Cardiff that morning from Ireland. So the story went. She got given the contract or the, you know, the short-term arrangement or whatever it is to go over and, and play for the Storm. Got to the ground, got given her cap, fielded, went out to bat, and the 20-year-old from Leinster rattled off 115 in 115 balls on debut in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy. So that is a, a great story for Irish cricket that, you know, yes, we, we think about Kim Garth leaving the system, but they've got someone like Prendergast coming through who is a, a local product. She's not like a cricketer who they've, who's grown up elsewhere. She is of the Leinster system and, um, yes, making it count straight away in England as well. I just think she didn't travel far enough. I'm not buying it. Oh, you came from Ireland to England. That's that's easy. Oh, that's Wales. like a 40-minute, you know, 40-minute. Oh, were they playing in Cardiff? Yeah, they were playing in Cardiff. I mean, you know, I, I don't imagine. That's even closer. I hope she got the ferry because you can get a ferry from um, Dublin over yeah. to Liverpool, I think it is. I hope she got the ferry there and then caught the train down. Whatever it was, um, she, uh, she made her impression. Then on Monday, Jeff, the blaze and the thunder. How's this? They didn't get on yesterday at Warsop, despite no rain falling. And Hypercourse uh, and others have voiced anger at the fact that on that same ground, the men did play on Saturday in a club game, and there was no rain between times, or certainly no rain on Monday, as I understand it. So that doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't pass the sniff test that they'd be playing at grounds. You know, it's great they play on test venues. It's great they play on, you know, first-class venues now. But the fact that there are still some grounds that rely on, not not availability, that's not quite right, but getting the best of the conditions perhaps. This is a professional competition, you know what I mean? There shouldn't be games scuppered for for reasons like that. Yeah, well, I suppose it depends whether the ground was chewed up enough from the the previous game, you know, if if you have that kind of muddy, wet outfield sort of situation. I have no qualification yeah. to speak about it because I don't know what happened. Well, that, that's kind of my point. Like if, if the men were given priority on that weekend, it should have been the women's game on Monday yeah. given priority, given it's a professional game. I know sure. that's not easy to square, but you know, it meant we didn't get to see Mahika bowl a second time in three days either, which is my main frustration. I want to see Mahika Gower bowl to David Gower. I know the spelling's <laughs> different, but it'd be fun. I'm sure we can pull this off because uh, David Gower still, well, I think he umpires the Tabs games. I don't think he actually plays in them, but... You know, she's going to be highly sought after in all sorts of games this year. Maybe we can get David Gower to to play a game for the Tabs and get Mahika to open the bowling. Left-handed to left-handed, Southpaw to Southpaw. Generational talent to generational talent. It all makes sense. I like it. At Wormsley, the Vipers, uh, they were hard-held but had their second win of the weekend over the Sparks chasing 184. So they only they kept them to 183 for nine in 50 overs and chased it seven down. George Adams, a four for then a 50 the England international, um, had Charlie Dean for support who made 42 and got there in over number 42. The Stars absolutely annihilated the Storm. So the Storm, who did so well in Cardiff, were beaten by 207 runs, the Stars making 296 for seven. The Storm all out for 89. Um, Pace Goldfield, who I touched on last week after moving clubs, 
uh, to join the Stars, 134 from 109. So her second century in three games, having never made 100 for the Vipers in the previous three seasons. So that's a great move for her. Captain Bryony Smith made 50 as well. And Alice Capsey, 6 for 28 in 7.5 overs. So the teenage sensation, her best career bowling. Well, certainly at this level, she's never taken a 6 for before. So, Jeff, you saw quite a lot of Alice last year playing in the Commonwealth Games, wasn't it? So she's a genuine all-rounder already at this age. Yeah, I mean, I think the I'd, I'd call the bowling still a work in progress okay. more than you know her, her her batting is the thing that really clicks when you when you watch. I mean, she just looks like she has everything. She's she's got the game ready to go. The bowling can differ in terms of its best to its worst, but yeah, I mean, if if that whole package comes together. And there's no reason to think that it won't. Well, watch out. And the Diamonds recorded their second victory. The defending champions, they knocked over the Sunrisers for just 157. So the Sunrisers have that that famous win and two really bad performances with the bat over at Chelmsford. Jody Grucock did make a 50, though, so her second half century of the season. Katie Levick, who's been the best county bowler statistically ever, I think. She's got more county wickets in the first division than, than anyone to do it. The veteran uh, took three for with her leg breaks. And they chased it down with... As usual, Lauren Winfield Hill, half century, set and forget every single game for the Diamonds, seemingly. And 32 not out at the end for young gun wicketkeeper Bess Heath. So that leaves the Blaze in top spot on 12 points, the Stars on 10, then the Diamonds and Vipers on 9, the Sunrises and Sparks on 5, the Storm on 4, and the Thunder yet to get away with a win, just a no result on 2 points. And the next games this week, uh, the Sunrises play the Stars on Friday. The Thunder play at Old Trafford, which is good, against the Sparks. Uh, and then the Diamonds have the Blaze and the Vipers have the Storm. So we'll keep a pretty close eye on that competition because it deserves our attention week in, week out. I'm always confused by the team names and, and the way they fit together. You've got the meteorological sort of connection with the Storm <laughs> and the Thunder and the Stars, and then they're like, let's just chuck some snakes in there. Why not? <laughs> Weather and snakes. Yeah, they go together. Snakes get rained on like anybody else. You know, Why not have them involved? Yeah, and who knows, uh, based on our conversation with Holty earlier, it might be that these sides are playing 100-ball cricket in a couple of years' time. It, it really is um, a state of flux at the moment. Or that they all just get junked and we start again with a whole bunch of other names and new teams. I mean, it's impossible to keep track of all of these things. Right, I think that's enough for the final word this week. If you want to support the show, patron.com slash the final word, get on board. We could use your support because we have a bloody massive season coming up. The English uh, summer is, well, already well underway as, as we've been talking about, but once uh, things get even busier through June and July, um, we'll have an awful lot of shows to make and a lot of miles to do. So um, be part of it. We've got a very fun chat page going on on Discord, which is very busy and well populated and all kinds of conversations going on there. Lots of other fun involved on The Final Word if you want to be part of it. Yes, we had Final Word listeners at Dalich Hamlet on Saturday, sadly, watching us get relegated, um, uh, having um, failed to score a goal on the final day of the season. So we're going down to the the seventh step of English football, but had Caroline with us there. So, yes, the the um, and, and Al, of course, Big Al. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've, we've had a nice um, series of catch-ups this year already with Final Word listeners. Be part of it on Discord, patreon.com forward slash the final word and throw a few bob in as you could do uh, for the Lord's tabs, as we mentioned at the start of the show for the Edinburgh Half Marathon on the 28th of May. That's in the show notes as well. 
Maybe you should consider getting Ryan Reynolds to buy your football team. Just saying, just floating it, just just putting it out there. Might might have a, a broader suite of interests well, yeah, after Rex. I, 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 I'm taking. I, I might take a more active interest in the club going forward as well. We'll see. I'm, I'm not against doing. Yeah, it. you don't have enough things to do. Yeah, you yep. definitely need another project. That's that's <laughs> that is that is the one thing I say about you, Adam Collins. Bit of an empty life, not much going on. You know, need some things to fill those long, slow afternoons. All right, this has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins looking for something to do. If you've got a project, send him an email. <laughs> he's, he's, he's keen for a hobby. Um, we will have story time coming up on the weekend and who knows what else might pop up in the feed between now and then. It's the lucky dip of podcasting. You never know what you're going to get. We'll see you next time. Ta-da. I had to go about it.